Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on our podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out. Some great shows there as well. This is our last show of 2022. I cannot believe it, but here we are, and we are joined by friend of the show and postdoctoral associate with MIT, Alex Tavasoli. Thanks so much for being here, Alex. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me back. So I love our conversations because they get to go in so many completely wide-ranging places. Folks will remember our conversation from about a year or two ago now that ended up with trains that can suck up carbon. More recently, we discussed the last possible fire humans might burn. And today, we're going to get to mining the moon. We're not going to start with mining the moon, but we are going to follow a track that will end up with mining the moon. So strap yourselves in, everybody. This is going to be fun. To start, and again, it will get to mining the moon, I promise, is just a state of the energy grid, because that's part of your sort of sphere of knowledge. And also, it's 2022. We exist at a place now where I think almost everywhere, new solar is cheaper than almost every other single option. I believe it may be cheaper everywhere than, than every other single option. I know about a year ago, it surpassed maintaining old coal plants. Like it's cheaper now to build new solar than to just keep coal plants alive. And so you would think combining with this sort of exponential improvement of solar panels and battery technology and other renewables and the obvious pressures of climate change on top of the most recent sort of investments from the, the Biden administration and across the globe, that we should be seeing an absolutely rapid transformation of our electricity grid towards renewables. We should be electrifying everything at a speed we have never seen before. And yet, the sense I get is that we are plodding along still and that we are really not seeing the changes in the fossil fuel infrastructure that we would expect, given the market and social purposes for such action. Does that feel right to you? And more generally, how do you see sort of the state of energy as we speak? Yes, I would say that that evaluation is generally correct. I'll give a little anecdote about a presentation I was in recently. I attended a PhD defense where the student was co-supervised between the MIT Energy Initiative and the School of Business at MIT. And so half of the audience in this presentation was from the business school and the other half was from the MIT Energy Initiative. And uh, the student had studied transitioning long-haul trucking to low-carbon operations. And he opened his presentation by saying, or asking the crowd, like who in the room thought we were going to be able to meet the IPCC goals not even the 1.5 degree goal, but the two degree overshoot goal. And it was a really telling moment where exactly all of the people from the business school raised their hands and said, yes, we can do it. And exactly zero of the scientists from the MIT Energy Initiative <laughs> raised their hands to say that uh, it would be possible. And that's really the like reason at the heart of why our energy grid is taking so long to transition. So the Three largest, by far largest, causes of atmospheric CO2 accumulation are burning fossil fuels for electricity, heat, and transportation. And in theory, all of those could be electrified by 
growing the electric grid and changing the what we use to make electricity, like as you mentioned, the solar, the wind, the batteries, things like that. And the problem with the way that, or maybe not problem, but the way that they are going about it is that the U.S. government and the Canadian government are very set on seeing this transition happen via private sector solution. And the really all the all the federal governments are hoping to do is provide relatively small incentives like tax breaks or grants to sort of get these get these projects going. And so it's really up to these individual business people who like might randomly have an idea or randomly encounter each other to actually come up with these come up with these solutions. So that's why there isn't really a a centralized or organized way that we are going about transitioning the grid. So one of the issues with this is when you take a private sector solution, the cost of a type of energy becomes separated from its value. So when you talk about solar being cheaper to run and maintain, that is true to purchase the solar panels is cheap and to operate them is also cheap. However, if you have a private company who is a for-profit company who wants to build a solar farm, the cost that they are able to sell the electricity at to make a profit doesn't have like a great value associated with it. So getting a private for-profit corporation to build a solar farm is actually not that attractive from a private sector perspective. And so that's sort of the fight that we're in right now and is the reason why the grid transformation is taking so long because these big centralized electrical grid utilities that we have, they make most of their money on transmission lines, um, not necessarily electricity generation. And they operate on like 20 year planning schedules. And so like if they haven't figured it out today, think about the next 20 years of them trying to work this out. And the first IPCC goals are what, eight years away now, seven years. Yeah. So. Okay. That's fascinating. So most of the money is made on transmission and not on actual generation, meaning that if you are really going to make money as a solar farm, you'd have to also be running your own transmission lines, which obviously is not possible. So the other option is that you're then paying for transmission to another company, which I'm sure cuts a significant portion of your actual margins down. And so we're sort of stuck yeah, in this fact yeah. that the grid just doesn't, just doesn't suit the the new people and the people who are currently have control have control of the grid itself. And that's where the money actually is, not at actually the creation of the power. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the main challenges is that when these grids were set up in the first place, they were public works. And then over the years, different chunks of them were sold off to the private sector and now lack that type of coordination now that the grid is like 100 years old and we need to upgrade it. The Ontario grid is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And in multiple cars I've had over this year, people have identified the fact that it is utilities now that are actually in some ways creating some of the most significant blocks in terms of getting new clean energy on the grid because they've got a system that makes the money and why would they invest a whole bunch of money to do something differently if they're currently making a bunch of money right now, even if it's better for the environment? You know, they're sort of like, no, I invested this money in this other thing previously. I'm going to keep doing this. You know, talk to me in 20 years when we're staring down 2.5 or 3 degrees global warming rather than 1.5 or 2 as we stand right now. Well, even then, when you look at who would make money off of a climate disaster, 
it is the utilities and the fossil fuel companies. Like if a if a tsunami wipes out a town, like you're buying fuel for the emergency trucks, you're buying fuel to like reconstruct everything. The government is paying emergency money to the transmission companies to rebuild the electrical lines. Like they stand to profit off of this. So, right, that's a good point. And I guess even you, we saw it. I guess last winter was it when the Texas utilities basically made an absolute mint during yeah. during the ice storms and the snowstorms because they could and they just could increase prices and you're sort of stuck into the system. Wow. Okay. So that's obviously one of the the challenges this this grid system. And I think in the in the second segment of this show, I do want to talk a little bit more about how we could begin to imagine investing in a grid that could serve us and and what that might look at. But in our previous conversation, we also talked a little bit about the, the national security perspective and how much your understanding of the, of the delays and the impacts of the fossil fuel companies on a from national security perspective are influenced decisions, which is interesting because you look at Europe right now and they're sort of hastening a transition towards renewables for national security reasons because of the, you know, because of the Russian invasion. Whereas other places in the world, it might be the opposite or, you know, the ability to control fuel is actually maybe more of a strategic value than we would more necessarily think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Because the geopolitical situation has changed so much over the last year and a half, we've seen a big shift by the U.S. to make sure that they are maintaining like physical dominance over the, the actual atoms that people use to create energy. And that's something that they can do with their current fossil fuels base. You'll see the people from the White House Sustainability Liaison will open their speeches on their transition plan by talking about how proud they are that the U.S. was able to achieve fossil fuel dominance in 2016 and then continue on to their plan for meeting their climate goals. And so that's something that they aren't able to do with a metals-based economy. So they're putting in moves to increase strategic metals and materials production in the U.S. domestically, but is not really something that they have the ability to dominate at the moment. So they're looking at other options, like, for example, mining asteroids via a moon base, which we'll do. <laughs> yes, that was the little tip to the hat to the moon mining, which we will get to. But before we do, there's one other really big story I want to talk to you about, because theoretically, it would allow us to maintain this very hard path energy system. And so for quickly for listeners, is a distinction between hard path and soft path energy systems. Hard path is very centralized, long transmission lines, but having sort of big power generating stations in the middle of them. It's what we have mostly now. It's, you know, what you see with large hydro and most fossil fuels, stuff like that. Soft path has always sort of been this like lovely goal. I think it's Emery Levins who was the person who coined these terms. And that goal was a much more distributed energy source where you'd have renewables sort of on every house. And the idea there is it's actually much more, it's less rigid because if you lose one house that has solar panels, the rest of the houses can supply energy themselves. Whereas right now, you know, you destroy two power lines and theoretically use, you lose energy to, you know, half the eastern seaboard as those of us in Toronto might remember from about 15 years ago. But that transition, as we'll talk about in a second, is very hard. The transition to create a whole bunch of new grid systems is one of the major reasons we're not changing it. So there's a lot of incentive for both 
really for anyone who doesn't want to change the system, but largely large utilities, to find another way to free or to cheaply create energy in a non-carbon intensive way. And the answer for the last, I think, 30 to 50 years has been fusion energy. And just, I believe, a couple weeks ago now, because we're airing this a little later than we than we've recorded it, there was a report about how people came out and said, we've done it. We've finally managed to get more energy out than, than we've put in to a fusion reactor. And a whole bunch of people on the internet said, this is the biggest news ever. Why is no one talking about this? This is incredible. And then we sort of stopped hearing about it, which should bring pause. And you know, again, this is a bit of your, not exactly your wheelhouse, but you have enough of a background to be able to tell us what did they do and what does it mean? Right. Yeah, that was a big news story this week. So it was a big scientific achievement. Like that's not really to be diminished. But yeah, it doesn't really mean anything for the immediate IPCC goals. So what they achieved at the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is in California, was that they have a very specific type of fusion reactor. So fusion energy is created when you smush two atoms really strongly together and they combine. And in that process of combining, they give off a lot of energy. And there are different ways of pushing the atoms together. At the National Ignition Facility in California, they have a system where they point a bunch of lasers at two deuterium and tritium atoms, which are types of hydrogen, and using the energy from the laser, get the two atoms to, to combine, giving off energy. Now, it is a really big deal that they were able to get that reaction to give off more energy than was put in. However, that phrase is a little bit misleading. So what they did was that they put in about two megajoules of laser energy into the reaction, and they got about three megajoules of energy out of the fusion reaction. But to create that two megajoules of laser energy in the first place, they had to pull 300 megajoules of electricity from the electrical grid. So <laughs> now what they said in their, their presentation this week when they announced their results was that what this allows them to do now is now that they know how to run the central reaction, they can go back and try to re-engineer these lasers to be more energy efficient themselves, which itself can take many, many years. Right. And that's like exponential improvement is a thing in science. We've seen it time and time again. It's the reason why every prediction on how cheap we can make solar has been wrong because it moves faster than you expect it to. But to get from 300 to one, I guess, is the like to, if you got it down to one, then one plus two equals three. It's a, that's an even ratio. But you need even below one. Right. Like you basically have to get from 300 down to less than one for this to actually generate more energy than it takes. Right. Like that's the that's the scale of change needed. Yes. Yeah. And then there are all of these auxiliary systems that have to be designed that are able to take the heat and turn it into steam and then turn it into electricity. So those have to be designed as well. Right. OK. It does hurt a little bit when you see this kind of reporting and it's kind of talking about these things, because I can't help but feel they undermine real action. Right. Like 
if if you see people out in the world and people read the headline or read a bit of this and are like, oh, nuclear fusion right around the corner, why should we bother doing X, Y, Z thing? That is bad. And that will lead to yeah. more emissions being released in the next Olympics. People won't feel the need to make the transition they can do now that are cheaper now that are possible now. And that's hard. And, and to me, that those new emissions, I think, sit squarely at the feet of the science reporters who are allowing sort of the, the wanting people to click on their article to, to influence how they report on these, on these facts. Which again, it's a huge scientific breakthrough. That's still a big deal. But no way should there be a climate person on Twitter being like, this is the biggest news story of the year. Because it's not. And it, 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 prob- it might be the biggest news story in, in the next 40 years like maybe 40 years down the road when they've made this thing, or even honestly, again, exponential change happens, it could be 15. But if we do nothing for 15 years and then get fusion, we are going to have to be, have built a million fusion reactors just to suck all the carbon out of the air that we've just released. Which again is a whole backwards approach when we could right now just not release the carbon by making the things that are like cents on the dollar per kilowatt. Yeah, you can cut this, but I was recently invited to work on an analysis to look at whether you could use fusion to run direct air capture systems. That seemed silly to me, frankly. I mean, are you just accepting that you're going to be in such a dire state at that point? Yeah. But to the to the point of science, the science journalism and the reporting on this, with very big public works projects like nuclear fusion, and mining the moon is another really good option and the space program in general. There is a lot of like geopolitical flexing associated with announcing like technologically dominant advances to the world and as well in maintaining public enthusiasm for the development of these technologies because, um, for example, there was a very large fusion program in the 60s and 70s that the Reagan administration killed because they were sort of like, why are we paying for this public science? And so that's sort of the the attitude that it's selling. But you're absolutely right that it can lull people into like a false sense of security where they think that their leadership has some sort of plan when they when they really don't. Yeah. Like right at the beginning of this year, actually, one of the first interviews I did for this year was with one of the co-founders of the Extinction Rebellion. Stu Basden. Mm. And he, one of his points was that he thought that Extinction Rebellion UK should close down because he thought it was now occupying a space of environmentalists who have it covered. And that sort of idea that they had, it, that they're, oh, they're environmentalists out there. I see them on the news all the time. They've got this covered was not allowing new people to imagine themselves part of the movement and to fill this new void. And I can't help but see a similar argument to be made about these kinds of, you know, 10, 15 years down the road scientific discoveries of like, oh, we figured it out. It's going to be, we're going to do this. We just need to figure out how to use 3,000, actually, I can't do the math, but I, <laughs> I'm just going to try to say whatever, three, whatever 300 down to one is less energy to, to get fusion to work. And then of course, yeah, build the, all the infrastructure and then everything else. Our timelines, man, our timelines which leads us directly back to the question of energy grids and how we can update our energy grids. So we're going to do a quick music break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how we can get an energy grid that actually serves renewable energy and, and ourselves. 
And then don't forget, we will get to Moonbase. We'll be right back with The Green Majority. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, anywhere podcasts can be found, including now the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out. They're great. If you missed the first part of the show, I am here with Alex Tavasoli, the postdoctoral associate with MIT and friend of the show, and we're talking about energy and the moon. Starting right now with energy, though. So in the first 30, 20 minutes or so, we chatted about really the, the reason why we're still so locked in to a fossil fuel and centralized energy system. And there are some ideas out there about how we can move on from that, starting with community energy programs and then going from there. And there, But then there are some problems, too. So let's start with how could you imagine us beginning to tackle the fact that our energy grid systems are so centralized and also so brittle, you know, like it's, they're, they're both old, as you mentioned earlier, but also brittle from a standpoint of like, if one big transmission line goes down, there's no second transition line to a lot of places, right? Like we are really a straight shot from one place to another and no grid systems. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's worth saying that even if climate change was not an issue here, a lot of our electrical grids need to be updated because, I mean, the Ontario grid, for example, I think I think about the Bruce nuclear plant like multiple times a week. Like that place is really close to its last legs and provides significant, significant amount of the baseload energy in Ontario, like 35, 40 percent. And if we don't have a plan to replace that with a green or low carbon source of electricity, and we wait too long, the fastest and cheapest thing to build is a natural gas plant. And that's where we're going to end up if, if we don't plan ahead. And when it comes to centralized versus decentralized grids, they were centralized in the first place because, again, they were originally these large public works initiatives. And also centralized versus decentralized grid systems have pros and cons on each side. So the Pros of a centralized grid are if a generation station goes down, you can pull energy from really far away if you need to, to supply that electricity. So for example, if a generating station in Ontario goes down, they're able to pull electricity from the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is like very far. So that's one of the benefits of it. But the, the cons are, as you've said, you end up with this large centralized organization that's sort of in charge of everything. You're very reliant on the resiliency of these transmission lines, which are increasingly under threat as our weather gets more and more extreme. And so if we have to transition the grid anyways, we could build out these community energy systems that are decentralized, would save on transmission lines, which would also save on a lot of metals that are used for the electrical wires and would really give people and communities the resiliency and autonomy that they would want for like a future low carbon future. 
There are also other social benefits to doing it that way. So, for example, if you had a localized energy system, you would have local workers working at them. You wouldn't. And this could work in a lot of more remote parts of Canada where you have sort of fly in, fly out communities that might fly all the way out to Alberta to like work in the oil sands. Those people could find employment close by. But getting those community energy systems off the ground is, is a little bit complicated. There are different policy incentives that can be put in place to encourage people to build renewables on their own houses or with their, with their immediate community or sort of with whoever they wish that's around them. And there's an economist that works at the Sloan School of Business here at MIT named Chris Niddle, and he studies the impacts of tax breaks and grant initiatives from the government and actually allowing people to, to do this. So he studied the electrical grid in Texas, which you already mentioned, and he found that rebates and incentives from the government for people to retrofit their houses with solar panels and battery packs ended up increasing energy poverty disparity over the course of the program, which is sort of a bit of a backfire. And that was because he found that in order for the houses to be eligible for the rebate program in the first place, they had to be up to a certain level of maintenance, which a lot of people in lower income housing don't don't meet. So what happened was that you had middle class and upper middle class people being able to take on these rebates and retrofit their houses while the people who were already in energy risk environments just sort of fell by the wayside. So organizing these things is very tricky, especially, again, if you're going with a private sector solution. Yeah. Another friend of the show who's spoken about this a couple of times, Matthew Klippenstein, has repeatedly mentioned this fact that using especially tax breaks and sort of the incentives so often benefit the people who can afford to do some of the other interviews. Like most of these tax breaks are like only a percentage and you have to have enough money in the first place to put up front to even to get the benefits. You know, same with the EV vehicles, exact same problem, right? Like if you're giving people half off EV vehicles, you're telling, you're giving people who have enough money to buy a new car money. And like that is, while still important for the EV market, it will definitely increase income disparity because you're not giving the same amount of money to the people who can't afford to own the house in the first place. Like where are renters getting these benefits from, right? And so you do have to imagine how else and where else you could invest in this. Like instead of giving tax breaks to homeowners, why aren't you running a hiring program to get every library to have this or every community center or, you know, every... Other buildings, I do think we need to rethink really about how we're even using government money spending because it's so easy to do tax breaks because people like them, but they're not actually very good at ensuring that the people who really need the help get the help because they're not paying a lot of taxes in the first place. So they're not the people you need to support with these incentives. Yeah, exactly. But as you said, building these microgrids would be good. Like if we can get these microgrids in place, they are really beneficial because again, they're more resilient. The other thing very quickly for folks to know, which I found fascinating when I learned it, is that in our current system, as you said, we can pull energy from, you know, in Ontario all the way down to, down to Tennessee. But also because we're part of this gigantic system, you have to have as much running energy available to you as your largest plant. So the bigger single plant you have, the more backup energy you have to have available within, I believe, an hour. And surprise, surprise, the things, the type of energy that you can get running in an hour is fossil fuels. 
And so the more we centralize and have bigger and bigger plants, the more backup energy that we have to have running, which A, is just wasted energy, but is B, almost always a fossil fuel energy because it's very hard, unless until we get to batteries that are so cheap, you just have a huge stack of batteries waiting around, which I, I could imagine is a reality, but we're not there yet. And, and that is yet another challenge with these sort of hard path energy systems. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, so that's what's called dispatchable energy is the energy that you can just turn on when you need it for an emergency. There are people that argue for that, like the, the, Bill, Great, the Bill Gates crowd, they argue that we should, you know, keep natural gas plants around, but not necessarily turn them on until we need to, things like that. Community-based energy would also, in theory, require a base load like that, except your the energy backup that you would need could potentially be filled with like water pumping storage or, or something like that that would be equally as dispatchable and would be needed on a smaller scale. So could generally be more accessible microgrids than it is at the, the large centralized grid scale. Yeah. And, and you can imagine a world, actually, let me throw a world at you and you tell me if it makes any sense at all. Which is because like these community-based energy systems, you know, will work in some places and and can work. And theoretically, you could imagine them slowly popping up over, you know, either Canada or the States and generally supplying their community with power and yet still have a connection to the major grid. But during the time that they're not connected or time they don't need it, they aren't pulling from it. And then if something does happen, they can pull from the grid itself. And you could imagine that system slowly reducing the burden on the centralized system and like replacing it over time in sort of a patchwork situation, right? Like, you know, okay, this town now has a community energy system. So 80% of the time, you know, Kingston doesn't need energy, but it might need to pull extra or, you know, a little bit from here or there. Or if, you know, it gets hit by a snowstorm, it might need something else. Although, honestly, as we've seen in many places, the places that most often have energy after significant destruction are the places that have solar panels on the roof or, or other distributed energy systems. Like those are the most likely to survive these cases. But like you could imagine a world where that happens, right? Like where that becomes the sort of model that you sort of invest in community energy in communities that want it, that can do it, that you would hire locally, you build up a system that makes sense for these places. And then they sort of remove themselves from a, a being a major player within the centralized system. Now, obviously, the centralized system won't like that so much. I'm sure the utilities have agreements that they will come out and be like, I hate you. But, but other than that, could that work? I think it could, certainly could work. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was this like anxiety that if you had too many points of input to a centralized grid, that it would somehow mess up the flow of the electricity. But there are academics like Christine Chen at University of British Columbia and Zeb Tate at the University of Toronto that have that study sort of managing that. And it seems extremely doable, or at least they they seem to think that it's doable. But you're right. It, in the end, it comes down to a business proposal. And if the large centralized utilities want to keep their business intact, then they will push against that. And we've seen Enbridge do that as well from like a natural gas perspective, like certain cities, I think Toronto, can't remember, tried to get off of natural gas and Enbridge just very much blocked it, which is the same centralized utility. It's just a natural gas utility. Yeah, that's fair. I was in a meeting recently. It's a complete aside, but I'm going to tell a story just because I think it's an interesting one. I was in a meeting recently where I had someone who was sort of a more industry adjacent program and process where, and I, she was talking to myself and a couple other activists who were from the Toronto Climate Action Network. And their 
question to us was like, but what has Enbridge done to like Torontonians? Why does why does TCAN not think that a partnership with Enbridge would be good? Because like, what have they done to you specifically? And I just had this moment of like, you don't understand A, how solidarity works, or B, how anyone in the activist community thinks about this. If your question is like, Enbridge hasn't hurt you specifically in the city of Toronto, and therefore, how can you dislike them? Like, we had to talk about line five in Michigan for a for brief second. I was sort of like, I mean, that's obviously bad, right? And that seemed to not work. And then I basically gave up. But just on the top of Enbridge, Enbridge apparently has even affected those of us in Toronto. Fun fact, I didn't know that. Thank you for the new piece of information about why Enbridge is no good. So with all of that said, we are heading shortly to the Moonbase conversation. But before we get there, I'm curious if you just have any last thoughts on the type of thinking and the ways we should be thinking about this transition. You know, you said that a major reason why we're seeing some pushback in national security perspective is that we're kind of moving from a oil, fossil fuel-based economy to a metals-based economy. And that, you know, America doesn't have as many metals, I presume, as it does access to fossil fuels at this current moment, because it's designed its sort of whole military apparatus to you know, secure its previously most important resource. And would you say that that is the fundament, one of the fundamental changes? Is that like where we're standing now is that the shift to electrify everything is a shift from the most important resources being fossil fuels to being metals? Yes, very, very much so. There are no sustainable energy technologies that don't rely in a very, very intense way on access to metals and also very special metals and unspecial metals. For example, the copper and aluminum used in transmission lines. There are studies out there that are suggesting that to electrify the economy, we would need, we just don't have the, the supply of those metals that we need. And then there are the rare earths that everybody talks about that are needed for wind turbines and electric vehicle magnets that also are very distributed around the world and have very limited processing capacity. And so, yeah, metals are a very, very big deal right now. Then there's lithium, of course, which is its own other issue. And from a national security perspective and maintaining like a conventional economic output, there are certain ways that, the, that countries can play this. So, for example, there is a bit of a tension between the Canadian government's commitment to keeping the fossil fuel industry open versus their electric vehicle incentive programs. And they really, really want to see electric vehicles grow in Canada, but they also don't want to shut the fossil fuel industry down. And when you look at something like that, it might not make sense when you put that together. But when you think about it from an economic perspective, the motivations make more sense. So for example, the oil that we pull out of the ground in Canada is primarily an export market, whereas the oil we burn in our cars in Canada is primarily an import market. So if we reduce our amount of imports, our trade deficit sort of looks a lot better. And so that that's sort of the more that that's how it ends up. Like a management consultant definitely came up with this solution. Right. You want everyone else to keep driving oil cars, but we personally want to drive electric vehicles. That's our that's our plan for the, the economy. I mean, that sadly at least makes sense from a management consultant perspective. And so so go there. All right, we are coming up to our next music break and then returning with the moon base. So stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. 
The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which forget anywhere podcasts can be found. However you found us, thanks so much for being here. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and if you've been listening to the show, you know that we are talking to friend of the show, Alex Tavasoli, a postdoctoral associate with MIT, and also the person who told me that the United States has a plan for a moon base which I did not know until you sent me that article. So, first question, why? Why does the U.S. want to mine, or set up a moon base to mine asteroids? I had my head, oh, you're mining the moon, but you're not mining the moon. You're mining asteroids from the moon. I think they also want to mine the moon. I think it's oh, okay. both. Okay. But, well, why is a couple of reasons. One, we've already talked about the metal shortages, which is attractive to the prospect of building that number of mines in the real world that we exist in is a big political barrier. Like nobody really wants to, no one really wants to live near a mine. And so that this is sort of a way of like offshoring, but like off planeting the, the issue. And the reason they want to use the moon as a base is because it takes so much energy to like escape the earth and get to the moon in the first place and a lot less energy to get to the moon from two other planets or asteroids. And this isn't really a new idea. Like there have been consulting companies that have been looking at the prospect of asteroid mining for like over a decade. Like I think one is called Artemis. Everything is called Artemis these days. But yeah, so th those are the main reasons why. Right. So do back to previously, you, you stated like, it's hard to control a bunch of metals unless you're the only person who has a moon base. And two, the sort of issues with mining alone. Although I will say that like, obviously the idea of having a mine near you is, you know, unpleasant. And we've seen across the world really da damaging. You know, some of the worst environmental racism comes from the areas around yeah. mines across the world. At the same time, I can't help but wonder, who are we sending to the moon? Like, who is living on the moon to do the mining? Is that better? Like, are people going to sign up for this? Or is it going to be just I another way to control people and send them, like, on a moon colony? Like, that does not strike me as necessarily a... Maybe it's more politically ability because you have control of the workforce in a way that's not exactly the same in other contexts. But it does still strike me as a pretty significant concern I have, especially with the United States, you know, history of using poor labor, you know, even to this day with prisoners. Like, do they say who we're sending to the moon? 
Uh, I think we're not planning to send humans. I think it's going to be robots. Uh, okay. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. Drones and robots. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's at least something. I'll take that as the <laughs> first piece of good news about the moon mining plan that we have. Uh, moon-based labor rights is like a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, like it's funny. It's funny that like, you know, Trump started the Space Force, which was ridiculous. And then the Biden administration didn't get rid of it, which is also ridiculous. And now I feel mm -hmm. like we're going to be some further and further examples of like more outlandish ideas. And I want to get to a point later on, maybe about how so many of these ideas that are put forward are again, kind of like back to the fusion point, a an example of a reason we couldn't do stuff now. You know, like the idea that in the same way that fusion is sort of this idea that you don't have to invest in solar power now, moon base is the example that you don't have to invest in like using less stuff now. You know, it's like we forget the idea that we could just use less metals and other things to allow us to maintain the most important use of the metals. No, we just need to slowly increase the amount of stuff on Earth by pulling from other places. And it's once again seeming like a refusal to imagine a slightly different world. Our, our brains get so stuck in our current world that we just like expand the idea of like, well, colonialism on the earth was bad, but maybe if it's in the moon, that's fine compared to like, maybe we should shift our thinking and just live within our limits. Like that's not allowed, but moon colonialism is perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Jason Hickel, the economist, he published another article in Nature this week about how we could actually achieve degrowth with like very, very specific steps. And yeah, certainly that is on the table. I would argue that the, again, because of the private sector solutions and the geopolitical flexing, those are a lot of motivations for sort of putting these things out. Like China flew around the moon last year. And so the U.S. is like panicking a little bit that they're losing dominance in that area. And so you have these mixed motivations for proposing programs like this. Like it really is. I mean, it's sort of upsetting because there are so many people working on trying to facilitate the low carbon transition from so many different ways, using so many different strategies. And at the end of the day, it's like, 10 world leaders hoping not to fist fight each other. Like, it's just, that's sort of where it's coming from. Right. That makes sense. But man, let's play along with the moon base for a second. Are all metals available in this context? Like, are there some metals that are easier that they expect to be able to rope in from asteroids? Is there particular metals that are most valuable? No, we don't know. Okay. I, don't I mean, know. sorry. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, just like this idea of like, you know, like, because you'd imagine if you're good in that effort, you'd want the most rare metals to make it valuable. But if we're running into even something like copper, you know, then that yeah. strikes me as like, like copper is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, not enough, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that one of the issues with projecting how much metal we'll need and deciding whether we have enough is complicated in itself. So there's a significant global black market for metals. So it's sort of like an open secret that in parts of the world, you'll have a metallurgy processing plant above ground that has another whole refinery underground. And so that makes it very difficult to know how much is actually being produced. And then also projecting the demand side from countries is also 
difficult because, again, will we continuously grow at the rate we have been? Is that possible? There is a whole wing of people that think that we can continue to separate human growth and economic growth from the physical atoms that are on Earth. And so that, that again, mixed opinions, mixed motivations. <laughs> right. And forgive me if you don't have an answer to this question, but it's sort of tying up that last theoretical version, which is like, you would imagine that one of the ways forward, outside of just, just ludicrous amounts of metal, is finding ways to use less metal in mm. any number of processes. You know, like... A simple one would be if more people just used e-bikes instead of cars, how much metal, more metal do you get back from most trips if you just reduce the amount of people who are driving cars, especially in places where, you know, they don't need them? Or you created trains, you know, instead of having three cars to a family, which is seemingly pretty common these days. And then not to mention the amount of metal we just waste, right? Like you go to a mm. landfill and it's not like there's for pulling every scrap of metal out of that, you know, yeah, and some, but like, what are you talking about? The idea that we're talking about a copper shortage with the amount of waste we have right now does strike me as a bit much, right? Like aluminum has what, like a 99% recyclability rate because it's so much easier to recycle aluminum than get to new aluminum. You'd think that as other metals got more rare, you could see a similar investment in maintaining the rest of these metals that we see with aluminum. And yet that doesn't exactly seem to be in the thinking of these people who want to go to the moon instead. Yeah, again, I, I would say that these big, they're really just trying to grasp the public imagination and make people think that there's a plan by these, these really big announcements. And yeah, I would say that with respect to metal shortages, there are a couple of things happening. The recycling industry for metals is alive and well. There are a lot of people working on gaining access to new types of ores and as well how to mine e-waste effectively and recover metals from that. And as well, on the point of copper, like think about all the pennies we took out of commission a couple of years ago. Like if you're hoarding pennies at your house, you might have some value there in the future. One thing, speaking of private sector motivations, is that if we do come to a place where we are running out of these metals, then theoretically the price of those metals would go up by a lot. And that would open up a lot more avenues for recycling. And it would make a lot of recycling processes much more economical than it is. And with respect to e-bikes, cars, trains, things like that, that's really a lobbying problem. So those types of transitions, trains are highly lobbied against by the airline industry. Funny enough, unions lobby against the closure of fossil fuel plants because they want to keep them keep them open. And so, yeah, again, there are all of these different factors rather than just one problem that people are trying to solve in a straight line. Yeah, for sure. The number of things coming up against trains, you know, like even the ways in which the idea of like the, the boring company was supposed to solve all of our techno problems and then basically left and just left people like five years later trying to start any plans for any fast food high, high speed rail in California and other places in the States. It's like, can it just build trains, everybody? It's a very pro-train podcast, in case anyone is really wanting this. But so we're, we're coming to a close. And so I'm curious if you have any other last thoughts on, on what we've said today, anything you'd want people to take away, or any just ludicrous predictions for the future, I will take one of either or both. Okay, I'll give you a, a recommendation for some interesting things I've been reading and a very ludicrous prediction for the future. So I've been really into Douglas Rushkoff's work lately. He's a professor at Brooklyn 
College and CUNY in the City College of New York. And he writes a lot about how the tension between whether technological solutions really serve humanity in the way that they say that they do. He runs a podcast called Team Human that I highly recommend on this topic. And he explores ideas like, you know, the best apocalypse prep is to be nice to your neighbors and things like that. Yeah, it's not really like building these Peter Thiel bunkers in, in New Zealand and things like that. Right. Yeah, because if your neighbor yeah. hates you, they know you have a bunker. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 That's a problem. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, he just came with a book called Survival of the Richest, which is like a very fun read that I recommend over the holidays. My ludicrous prediction for all of this geopolitical flexing that's going on with respect to the energy industry is I think that the way that China rises to global dominance is that the climate crisis will not be solved via private sector solution. And we will descend further into all of the various crises, food shortages, refugee crises, extreme weather. And then China is going to pull a Wilson style Wilson Doctrine style moralist argument for why centralized organization is needed to save the planet, basically. And that's how they rise to power. That's my prediction for the rest of the century. All right. I like it. I always figured that eventually China would just really commit to, to a carbon price and then make everyone sort of like you is doing it, but make everyone else do it. And since they would have the ability to control and create so much solar panels and everything else, that people would have to be trading with them. And so they could just basically control the carbon market in a relatively central way as, as way as well. So we will keep an eye out for your theory. I think that your theory still leaves an opportunity for a moon base, just maybe not an American moon base. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, get, they won't get their stuff together. Their, their space force is not going to work out. But anyways, well, thank you so much. This has been a fantastically fun conversation. A great way to end our 2022 for those who are listening, have a wonderful New Year's, and we will catch you in the New Year in 2023. This has been Stephen Hostetter chatting with Alex Tavasoli, a postdoctoral associate with MIT. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, have a wonderful day.